You're listening to a podcast of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. We exist to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people whole in Him. Good morning. Take your Bibles and let's turn to Philippians 3 together. Thank you, Jordan. Philippians 3, we're going to be in the first 11 verses. By God's grace, and if it is His will, I'll read our texts, I'll pray, and then I'll preach. Let's look at Philippians 3, 1 through 11 together. This is God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for this confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Oh God, we come to you praising your holy name, hearing the prayers, singing the songs, now hearing your word. And we ask that you be merciful to us sinners. I pray that you bring strength to uh, your speaker now, that I would not get in the way of the message, but rather support Father in any way I possibly can for us to hear it properly. Lord, would you help us as sheep to hear the good shepherd, the one who loves and cares deeply for us and for our good. We ask this morning, God, that your name would be glorified throughout the earth in so many different churches, in so many different places and countries, in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, even as those suffer under the hand of wicked people. I pray now, as we open your word and learn and grow, that by doing so, we might know you and we might love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Uh, I want to start out just kind of asking you not to respond. You're a very good audience because a lot of times I'll get responses and I don't mean to actually get responses out loud. And other times I do. So I'll tell you, you don't have to respond to this one. Um, But I want you to think about it. Why are you here today? That's kind of a harsh question for a preacher to ask. Like, let's fill the seats up. Like, no, no. I'm like, why did you come in? Why did you come for worship? Why are you here listening to the preaching of the word? Worshiping through prayers and singing of music and gathering for communion. I want to kind of broaden that even a little bit further. 
why do you care about religion or broader, like, like it may be more specific, I guess, in, in some ways, living the Christian lifestyle. Why does it matter to you? What, why are you doing it? I'd assume that many of you read your Bible somewhat regularly, or at least you want to. Uh, I'd assume that many of you even give money to support uh, the work of Christ's church. Some of you to, to Cornerstone Bible Church here, they're members. And if you don't do that, you at least think that it's a good thing to do. You understand that. I'd assume that many of you even pray to God. Uh, maybe not consistently, but if you're a Christian, you do want to pray and you want to make that a, a regular habit for yourself. We're talking about classic Christian disciplines, the, the, the things, these spiritual disciplines that we try to walk in day after day after day. My question is, why do we do them? Maybe we don't think about that question. Maybe we just actually have an underlying answer that we've never really thought about too much. So it's right for us to ask this question. My question is, why do we do them? I'll go even further and to say that I think not only just sometimes do we do them, we, we really do want to do them. So I want to affirm that as well. I know who I'm speaking to. I've, I've talked to so many of you who want to read your Bible, who want to pray, who want to make memory of, of the Bible important. So why do we want to do these things and attempt them. Some of you may be sitting here and you really don't have much of a choice about it. I can see some of you, you were dragged in here by your parents. You don't have any choice about it and they have rightly chosen to bring you to worship God on the Lord's day. That doesn't mean that you necessarily want to be here sitting through all this. I understand that. Some of you used to be in that group at some point in your life. Now you've grown up a bit and perhaps you haven't made like a specific choice, but you know it's kind of the tradition that your family has done. It's, it's normal for you. It's a, it's a good practice overall. So you've just kind of continued on doing it and showing up to church on a Sunday is somewhat normal for you. I didn't realize this was normal in the South. I, I come from Pennsylvania and I come from, uh, I, I grew up in, the, in Ontario, Canada. Like if you didn't care about Christ, you definitely didn't come to church. So to me, this Southern culture is so strange that People who really are unbelievers like think it's just a good thing to go to church. Maybe that's the category that some of you fall in. Others of you just aren't Christians at all, and yet you believe in some way that you're interested in the institution of the church. I've heard from different uh, experts that liturgical practices and some sort of faith is good for your, your mind and your body, so you're willing to give it a try. Um, there's pretty nice people here overall, so it's not a hostile environment to you, so you're trying it out to see what it's like. And some of you even bring your kids, because generally we think that having them in church is a good thing for some reason or another. Then there's others of you that may want to do these spiritual disciplines, but it really kind of comes out of a guilty conscience. It comes out of a struggle day after day with difficulties of sin. You know that you've sinned against God. You know that you've broken his law. And you don't really want to continue in those things, so you'd rather do the right things so that you'd be making sure that you evidence that you actually do care about God and what he says. You want to make sure that you actually react and say, no, I don't want to continue in the sin stuff, but I want to do the right things. In this way, you're putting together, in a sense, a, a good body of work to evidence the fact that you care about what God says and that you've done enough that you show God that you really mean it. Others of you may have a version of this and long to, to kind of 
pay God back for all that he has done for you. You recognize your sin before God, and you know that you need Jesus Christ. His incredible sacrifice is what you need. You know you need him alone for salvation, but it seems like Romans 12 is telling you that it's reasonable for you to live back as a repayment for all that God has done for us. Sounds reasonable. Or maybe you want to do these spiritual disciplines because you want to grow spiritually. You want to become more mature. You hear the call from the scripture that we're supposed to be equipped for the ministry, that God wants us to be spiritually mature. So you engage in these things because you want to grow. It's a good thing. Or when the question's asked, why do we want to do these spiritual disciplines? Maybe you're like me, especially when I was a teenager, and I responded with the theologically correct answer, to glorify God. Again, a great answer. I don't know if I understood what I was saying at that point. You love God and you might know that that's the right answer to this question. To glorify God is always, it's almost like the same as Jesus. Like a Sunday school answer that's gonna get you every time if someone says, why should you do this? To glorify God. It's always the right answer in one way or another. That's good. Um, you know what the Bible calls us to these things and you love God and you want to please him so you obey and these are the ways that we want to look and, and say, God, I want to praise you even by doing these things, both my words and my deeds. There's a whole spectrum of different reasons maybe that each of us would come to the spiritual disciplines that God calls us to. And we understand that different motivations affect those things. Some of those could be really good things. Some of those, not so good reasons why we would do it. Others are downright condemning and they're really awful. In the coming weeks, I'd like to take a, a brief break and we'll finish up the Ecclesiastes. And before we go into our new series, um, we want to take some time and look at these things that we ought to be doing as Christians. Now, you rightly hear me as application regularly in sermons say, read your Bible. You hear me say, pray. You hear me say, you should memorize the word of God. You hear me say, meditate. You hear me say, go be with brothers and sisters in worship. Partake of the Lord's Supper. Be here under the sound preaching of the word. But if I just took all those different things and put them on a list and then said, hey, make sure you're doing all these things, you could do it. You really could. You could do it regularly. I want to ask the question and back up a little bit and say, why? Why are we doing them? We do know and ultimately would agree that we want to glorify God. I'll just put in here really quickly that it's possible for us to do things and we label it that it would glorify God and it does the complete opposite of that. You and I know that. We've probably all been aware of this very thing, that you have done something that seems to be a spiritual discipline, that someone from the outside would look at and say, hey, you're good. I mean, you go to church every Sunday. I mean, you even pray. You do and fill in the blank, right? And we know that our hearts so often either are not there in obedience or we don't have a real motivation at all besides the fact that we know we're supposed to do it. Now, I want to make sure you hear me clearly. There are duties that we respond to Scripture rightly. And as we do so, we learn. We learn about why God would even ask us to do those things. And so I want to say, continue to obey. Continue to try to glorify God. What I want to do this morning, though, is I want to help us think through 
when we are engaged in these means of grace, these spiritual disciplines, what we are aiming at. What's the goal in this? How do we know if we're doing it the right way as we grow in Christ? The two answers at the end were obviously the best ones, to grow spiritually and to glorify God. Those are right answers. But if we dig deeper into each of these, I wonder if they're in some ways either incomplete or maybe a little bit misunderstood. The very worst, again, they could even be false religion. I wonder if we rightly give the answer that we want to grow spiritually, but haven't thought about at all how that affects God or his eternal purposes. I wonder if we've considered how doing good things like reading words on the page of a Bible brings glory to God. We believe it does, but do you know how or why? Is there any reasoning or logic that constitutes an action that would actually glorify God? I'm going to make an assumption today that we believe the conclusion of the church for centuries that indeed our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We see it all over the scriptures, but before I do too much assuming, let me just give you a few. First of all, that our chief end is to glorify God. Isaiah 60, 21 says this, Your people shall be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that, or so that, ready? I might be glorified. And probably one that you've all memorized, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Most of our kids probably know it. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You recognize these things, right? What about the second part, though? To enjoy him forever. To, if our real end is supposed to be to glorify God and enjoy him forever, let me give you two other statements. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. What an amazing statement. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 16, 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To enjoy him forever. We agree with the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it tells us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But how does going to church, reading your Bible, praying, how do those things do that? How does fasting do that? How does Bible memory accomplish that? There are so many different actions that we accomplish and try to do that can and should glorify God when they're done correctly. But the doing of them correctly isn't as simple as following a list of rules blindly. I submit to you that the only way to glorify and enjoy God forever is by knowing Him. When I say knowing, I mean trusting Him. When I say trusting Him, I mean loving Him. By knowing God. I know these are three different words, but if you know God as he has called us to know him in the Bible, there will be absolute trust, there will be absolute love, and it will result in worship. This is the heart that, of the, of the, and life that glorifies God when a soul understands what we were meant for and then lives that reality out. 
We know that the greatest in the first commandment and the second like unto it sums up all of the law and the prophets when Jesus tells us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, and all our minds. The rest of our time today, I want to take us to where Paul talks about this in Philippians. Philippians, uh, they are words not only for the Philippians, the people in that church. These are words for us. I've said this before. When we sit here open to God's word, this is not my opinion, just letting you know. All of this, I'm asking God regularly that he would allow his word to come out. And if that's true, guys, if that's what we do, we are hearing from God now. This is for us. So pay attention. Listen and hear and apply the word of God. The passage that we just looked at is very Pauline meaning that it's, it's long and it's technical and it kind of meanders all over the place. It's got subunits that kind of do something over here, but he kind of gets back on track over here. But all of it, hopefully, we can look at to understand clearly that knowing Christ is the aim of our life. So knowing him, and of course, like I just said, that then would mean if we properly know him, it would be to trust and love and obey him. If you're taking notes, uh, I know a lot of kids have uh, sent me different pictures. Their parents send me pictures of their notes. I love that. Here's the one sentence, or parents, if you want to know the sentence from this structure, just one sentence that recaps all of one, 1 through 11. It's this. Rejoice in God. Rejoice in God by watching out for false religion and by pursuing Jesus Christ as ultimate gain. Say it again. Rejoice in God by watching out for false religion and by pursuing Jesus Christ as ultimate gain. Now, our time in this passage will not be maybe as thorough as usual. That doesn't mean, though, that I'm not telling you the truth. I'm not going to flip over every single rock and dissect every verb for you to show all of this. And yet I still think this will be immensely valuable as we ask these questions, as we head into understanding what God calls us to, as we grow closer to him, to know him through the means of grace through these spiritual disciplines. So with that in mind, let's take a look at uh, Philippians 3 and try to get a sense of what he's doing here. Verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. All right, stop. <laughs> I want to begin that you understand this is an imperative. That means it's a command. He is telling you, you must rejoice in the Lord. You and I don't have an option about this. We must rejoice in the Lord. Now, what that means, we'll find out as we work through it. But let's start there. The command to us is to rejoice in the Lord. Something that we have to do, something that's right and true. It aligns with the purposes of God and His glory. Now, we don't automatically know yet what it means, but at least we understand that He is speaking this as a command to us. So are we saying that this is just uh, some sort of good attitude? or maybe a, a cheery Christian disposition about us. We'll find out as we go on. He goes on, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, this is just kind of a way of saying, I'm about to give you a warning, and it's good for you to hear this warning, and don't fear, I don't fear bringing it up, even if it may offend a few people. I'm not too concerned about that because it is for your good that you hear this warning. You need to hear it. Now, he's just not talking about the Philippians, guys. This is, you, listen, ready? You need to hear this warning coming. 
This is important for us so that we would not misuse these means of grace, these spiritual disciplines. Verse 2, look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. There's the warning. He's not talking about our canine friends. He's not talking about that in animals. He's talking about people. He's talking about dogs. Most likely he's talking about Gentiles who care nothing for God. He's talking about evildoers who are most likely people who know the law, roughly, but they decide not to do it. They're going to do evil. And then those who mutilate the flesh. Whew, got gory quick, right? What is he talking about here? This is a harsh way of talking about Jews who trusted in their, their, uh, their, their continuation and obedience to the law as their salvation. He's talking about Jews who trusted in the physical sign of circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, and in the keeping of the law. Now, this didn't mean that they, all they did was perform circumcisions, but rather that this was the way that Paul summed it up to help us understand. So he calls them mutilators of the flesh. Not a very nice term. Now, let's go on. Verse 3, for we, we are the circumcision. Who, by worship, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What he does here is warn these Christians against unbelieving Jews because Christians are different. They are the true circumcision. Scripture makes it clear that what God requires is a circumcision of the heart, not merely of the flesh. And they would know this actually if they read their Bibles and understand this. Uh, the Torah, the, the five books of the law. We know that he talks about this. There are people who worship the, the real people that are actually the circumcised are the ones who have a heart that worships by the Spirit, who glories in Christ Jesus and don't trust their human effort, their human striving to keep the law to be their religious confidence. They do not trust in it as though if I do these things that will get me by. Rather, they worship in spirit, they glory in Christ, and they put no confidence in their own striving. Verse 4, he continues here. It's an uh, important subordinate point that he's going to make. If anyone has grounds to talk about human striving, about keeping the law, Paul has the grounds to talk about it. Like, you want to go in debate with me, guys? Oh, man, bring it on. Look at my life, and you're going to see you have nothing compared to me. Paul's got all the credentials. He talks about them. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He gives us two categories here that kind of helps us understand. One is about, first, hereditary, what he got, what he was born into. If you see this, Paul was a proper Jew from the cradle. His parents did all the right things that they were supposed to do. He grew up in the elect nation of Israel. More than that, he was, an, from some way, an honorable citizen, part of the tribe of Benjamin. That meant something to these folks. He spoke the Hebrew language and he knew the Torah based on his upbringing. By the very fact he was born into it, he had all the pedigree. 
But what did he choose to do with it, right? You can be born into wealth. That's, you know, you can have a famous last name, but what are you going to do with it, okay? You want to know what else? Take a look here. Second, his choices in his devotion. He was of the most astute class of Torah scholars. He was a Pharisee. When it came to zeal, not only was he doing all the spiritual disciplines, he was stopping all the infidels, all the Christians, all the churches from continuing on in their blasphemy. He was a persecutor of the church. And when it came to doing what was right, Paul was blameless. No one could bring a charge against him, but the law said that he was in sin. I mean, this is an impressive resume of good works, an excellent pedigree, and a rigorous evidence of showing and doing the spiritual disciplines. I mean, this guy did it all. He could, in a sense, if anyone could, Paul could have uh, confidence in the flesh. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Wait, what? But you'd be foolish to throw this resume away, right? I mean, to put it in, in, literally in the trash, in the waste, explains more in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's not talking about suffering here. He's looking at the balance sheet and he's seeing that what he was putting his stock in is worthless. Understanding it, it couldn't hold up. When he met Christ, the Son of God, the very Messiah, crucified and risen, he realized that Christ was the second Adam that fulfilled all of the promises to humanity. And he realized the surpassing worth of Christ over everything. He's making a, a contrastive statement, as it were, about the old confidence, which now he thinks is rubbish. Like, I had all this confidence compared to everybody else. Like, I, I was better than everybody else, really, and I was, I was legit. But now, like, if you look at that, it's rubbish. It's nothing compared to my new confidence, which is of ultimate value. He calls it surpassing worth. The, 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 uh, the translation we have is good. There's not a good way to talk about it. He's saying it's better than any other value that I could possibly have. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. What he means is that all those things are lost because of the supremely better, far more valuable worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So much so that I am willing to say that all my hard work, all my loyalty and devotion and dedication my incredible resume, my righteousness, if I really think about it comparably, what I'm willing to call it is garbage. It's rubbish. It's waste so that I might gain Christ. I, I do want you to see that in this statement, there's a transactional nature here. Not that he could in any way earn his, his salvation. That's not what he's talking about, but I want you to see this. In the second half of verse 8, he says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. You know, you, you understand this, I promise. You know the parables of Jesus. He talked about this very thing, understanding and explaining to us how good and valuable the kingdom of God was. Let me read to you from Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. It doesn't matter to him. I'll sell all of it. And then he buys the field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Whatever he had in his whole life, think, think about your own life. My house, my cars, my, maybe a few bank accounts. Like, like I, I don't have much, but like, if I took all of that and I said, it doesn't matter at all, I'm willing to sell it all in order to have this. How about your impressive resume before God? You see the transactional nature here? He's willing to say, all that stuff that I did, all that religious functionality, all those spiritual disciplines that I placed my confidence in, it's rubbish. My only confidence is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Friends, are you willing to take all your church going, all your Bible reading, all your good deeds, and call them rubbish in order to have Christ? Or would you rather see God and say, God, I, I, I read the Bible in your name. God, I, I told people about Jesus in your name. God, I fill in the blank. You know the devastating passage in Matthew 7 where he hears that person says, depart from me, I never knew you. What is far more valuable, church? Our good works or Jesus Christ alone? You know the answer. Christians, is this, is this how we see our Savior? As the only one who can save our soul, the only one who can actually please God and stand in our place and give us his righteousness. Look how Paul talks about gaining Jesus. Let's pick back up in the second half of verse eight. He says, for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Gaining Christ means union with him. This is an incredible doctrine. It means abandoning my own righteousness, my own confidence in my abilities to keep the law and trust, get this, the faithfulness of Jesus to obey the law, which we know he did. It's done. Are you worried about keeping the law? It's done in Jesus alone. That's why I'm trying to say, hey, don't trust in your good works. Is that what's really holding on to here? You're not going to get very far. What you need is someone who's fulfilled it perfectly. And this, the faithful one, Jesus himself, is who we must have. There's a beautiful gift here. When we get Christ by faith, we get the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, whose righteousness do you depend on day to day? Both for your salvation, of course, but also for your sanctification. To be made more holy, to walk according to his word. Are you looking to your own spiritual track record, hoping that you'll be more faithful so that you can grow and please God? To be more spiritually mature? You can only ever grow and please God and experience true joy if your confidence is in Christ, not yourself. In verses 10 and 11, we have an additional point to add to the purpose statement, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. 
Paul says, I'm not interested in religion or living a good life and hoping that my own striving will, will get me through. I'm interested in the power of God to help me live and die and rise from the dead to eternal glory forever with God. That's what I'm interested in. And I know that if I'm in Christ, I've got it. I have full confidence knowing that if I'm in Christ, it's done. If I have to worry about myself, no way. I'm going to be up and down and over. That's why we constantly tell one another to look to Christ. Our only confidence. It is not in ourselves. Guys, we are not able. We don't have it. I can tell you my own failures this week and, and, and the things that I ask my, my, my other, other good men and, and, and women too to pray for me. I ask for wisdom. I ask to fight against sin of pride and laziness and lust. I ask for us to meet to love Christ and to know him, not to just play the game. If I struggle with these, I know you do. We all do. We, our only confidence is in Christ alone. So we must have him. The goal of our Christian disciplines then is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The point that Paul makes, now we're going to go back, in verse 1 is this very thing. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. The point Paul makes is that this can only happen when we turn our backs on Christian disciplines as an end in and of themselves. As though once we get to that, I do a great job at fasting, I memorize, I do all these different things. That's not an end in and of itself. They were always meant to bring us closer and draw us closer to God. That we might rejoice, not in our good works, no, rejoice in the Lord. What a stupid thing if we thought, rejoice in reading the Bible, rejoice in completing your checklist, rejoice in, no, he says rejoice in the Lord. Our only joy. That's what the Christian does. The point Paul makes here is that this can only happen when we turn our backs on Christian discipline as an end of themselves, because that's what the mutilators of the flesh did. That's what he's talking about. When he's talking about mutilators of the flesh, they were concerned most about getting the things done that were in the Torah, and they were going to trust that. They were following those rules. But he says, you must follow and trust God. They did the commands that the Bible said. They did them over and over again. They offered sacrifices. They kept dietary laws. They kept the Sabbath. They followed all the rules. Doesn't that, isn't, isn't that good enough, God, for you? He says, no, I want you. I want you to know me. I want you to love me. My greatest commandment was not do the stuff. It was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. I know I preach like this a lot because it's what we need. I don't want us to be a people who put our faith in our works. As much as you're going to hear me say do good works, I wholeheartedly want to tell you do good works. But we have to understand that these things can only come from the righteousness of Christ who is working in us. We trust him. I want to warn us against false religion, against seeing these means of grace as a way to add up all of our righteousness and hand it over to God and hope that he'll stamp it and let us in. Our desire is to read the Bible, to pray, to fast, to memorize scripture, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. All of these are good desires. But I want us to see where they are leading us. 
rightly, guys, these things are all to lead us to God, that we might know him, that we would draw near to him, that we would experience the grace of knowing God. Because you know that this will completely change you, right? Do you recognize that knowing God brings you to the place that you were supposed to be from the beginning? A creature who is endowed with an incredible gift being in the image of God with things to do, to glory in him, to work with our hands for the glory and honor of God. How does it happen? We must draw near to him. The point of all of these things is not that we have an end in of themselves in doing these works, these, these spiritual disciplines, these means of grace, but that we would know God. You may not see the, the connection maybe as closely, but over time, these next few weeks, I'd like to show us how these means of grace are not a destination, but are a channel that leads us to a person. For now, it's enough for us to hear that he commands us to do these things, not ends and of themselves, but they're means to know Jesus Christ. We should reject self-righteousness, false religion, and we should embrace Jesus Christ, our greatest gain, the thing exactly that we need. The command here, rejoice in the Lord. Now, I'm just going to say this too. That's not like when your kids are having a bad attitude, you say, hey, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, he says rejoice. <laughs> not the point. Not the point. You get it? Like in the Lord isn't like a nice add-on Christian phrase. It's like a rock-solid understanding of what we're meant to do, to rejoice, not in stuff, not in our own pursuits, not even doing the right stuff. Rejoice in the Lord. How are you going to know the Lord? I'll end with this. Psalm 34, 8 and 9. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, those who fear him have no lack. Our God will come through on every one of his promises. Let us draw near to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for doing everything that you have done from your life to the cross work, to rising from the dead, to ascending, to interceding and advocating on our behalf at the, at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we are forever grateful and indebted to you. And we ask that you teach us to draw near to you. Not that we'd somehow try to show you our, our stuff and say, here, look, I, I care about you. I'm showing it. But rather that we would come to you hungry to know you, to, to speak to you, to, 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 to love the world less and love you more. Would you show us yourself, God? We thank you for your great care in us. And I ask today that you would help our hearts to yearn for you. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you're not a part of a gospel-centered church in your city, we encourage you to find and belong to one. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.